0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SUPChina. Subscribe to SUPChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well, of course, as a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we've been calling the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week, I am continuing with this informal series of podcasts themed around Thinking About Thinking About China, when I first introduced today's guest last year, around the same time, I noted that he was someone whose approach to thinking about China was one that I very much admired, and that he, you know, checked all the boxes in my mental checklist for, for China analysts. So naturally, as I thought about people who invite to speak on this series, his name came up immediately. Uh, Dan Wong is a technology analyst with Galvacal Dragonomics. And many of you will remember him from his turn on Seneca in early 2021 when he talked about his annual letter, something of a tradition now for the last several years. Well, Dan has recently published his 2021 letter, and it does not disappoint. It's chock full of insights and observations, which are, in their own right, very much worth turning over in your head. But just as interesting to me is Dan's ability to take in the bigger picture, to offer a multi-lens view that's sensitive both to Chinese and Western perspectives to recognize and really to deliberately set aside the sorts of biases that are all too often present in outside analysis of China, and to make candid, dispassionate comparisons. After all, China and the United States are confronting, broadly speaking, many of the same problems, but are taking radically different approaches to them. And the perspective offered by Dan is invaluable for those who want an unsentimental, comparative look how they are responding to the pandemic itself, to the vulnerabilities that it has exposed in both systems, to income and wealth inequality, to the more deeply rooted pathologies of their respective political economies. We need a better understanding of this country, writes Dan of China. Too many commentators have been interested in the story of China's collapse. When the collapse doesn't come, they lose interest and move on. It's a more important and more subtle skill to figure out how this country can succeed, because that is the exercise the Chinese leadership is engaged in. Dan joins us from Shanghai, but we will be roaming all over China in this discussion. Dan Wong, I am so delighted to have you back on and so eager to get into this conversation. Welcome back to Cynica, man. Thank you, Kaiser. What a pleasure it is to be back on the show. Well, yeah, fantastic. You've had an interesting year. Uh, first of all, listeners, I think you'll all get a lot more out of this conversation if you just Hit pause, take 20 minutes first, and go and read Dan's 2021 letter. So do that right now if you can. Uh, If you are in a hurry to get back, you can skip the long section on opera. Uh, Not that it's not interesting, but maybe we won't be talking about it so much on this episode. Hey, welcome back, listeners. That was good, wasn't it? Okay, Dan. um, So I'm sure I speak for many of the listeners who aren't currently in China. When I say... That it's been really frustrating to see so much happening in China, changes of such obvious historical importance, uh, not just at the level of policy and regulation, but also changes in the national mood, in in the zeitgeist, and just not being there on the ground. I mean, I lived there for 20 years, and not being there, it's been pretty painful. I mean, we may talk to people in China quite regularly, practically every day, as I do, but it's still not the same at all as living there and being immersed in it, so... Thanks for taking the time to help fill us in. Let me start where uh, where you do, really, with your thoughts on China's major conurbations, all of which you're not familiar with to some extent, having lived in, in three of the, the mega regions. Uh, I think anyone who has lived in China and spent time in all those regions, the north, you know, Beijing and Tianjin environs, in the Yangtze Delta cities, and especially Shanghai, of course, and in the Pearl River Delta, will recognize, I think, the truth in your observations about them. I've often observed, actually, that the caricatures and the stereotypes that people have of them in other parts of China and even outside of China are actually embraced by those being caricatured or stereotyped. Uh, you know, Beijingers are lazy, garrulous, obsessed with politics and power, and they, they know that. <laughs> they're, they're okay with it. Uh, Shanghainese are fastidious and detail-oriented, but they're also Philistines, and they're kind of, you know, petty bourgeois. The Cantonese are really gritty and hardworking and unpretentious and, you know, and they'll eat anything. Uh, but, hey, you know, they're, they're good with that, too. Right? So where, if anywhere, would you say that your observations, Dan, depart from the prevailing stereotypes?
1: Right. Well, first of all, I should say that uh, Chinese stereotypes are kind of my favorite thing. Um, they are, <laughs> as you say, uh, exactly that, you know, Beijingers uh, just really like to talk. Uh, they're, and they're fantastic at talking. You know, they're just absolutely superb at telling these wonderful stories about everything that they see, everything that they observe. And I think the trope of the Beijing taxi driver telling someone everything they need to know about China—well, you know, there, there, there is at least a bit of a grain of truth in there. Yeah. And so you're right. To me, Beijing does stand for this more intellectual. Uh, more garrulous aspect of thinking about China that is a little bit more focused on the bureaucratic aspect of power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Shanghaiers are, I think, a little bit more in between. They're much more commercial, uh, they're much more international. I feel that the majority of expats are in Shanghai, not elsewhere, because it is uh, just a superb place to live. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then Shenzhen is really the apotheosis of just the pure money making spirit. But I should also say that, um, you know, I lived in three regions of China. These are the three most economically developed regions of China, but they're not every region of China. And so there are plausibly, you know, something like 15, 20 more mega regions that I did not spend substantial time in and I can't really speak about. Now, you ask uh, how I depart from these stereotypes. And what I wonder, I think, is still right now my home uh, region of uh, Shanghai. The stereotype of Shanghai is that it is very much commercial, very much internationally looking, looking towards the sea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it is also still the place where it was the founding of the Chinese Communist Party uh, about exactly 100 years ago. It was the main site uh, of the Gang of Four during the Cultural Revolution. And it was two uh, general secretaries ago during the time of Jiang Zemin, that was a a lot of development then. And there is still a lot of Shanghai um, needs currently within the Politburo. And so what I kind of have to grapple with is Shanghai is indeed very commercial, but it is also very uh, political. And I wonder how to reconcile these two. But um, Kaiser, I I wonder, out of the three areas that I identified, I think I'm clearly very sympathetic towards uh shanghai but i'm also still uh, i think i consider myself a northerner at heart i wonder how you um consider these three regions um in in, in your own thinking
0: oh yeah i mean i'm a beijing partisan uh obviously I, 20 years of my life there I, i'd only spent about six months living intermittently in shanghai there's nowhere else in china that i've lived for a prolonged stretch my wife's a beijinger I'm um, all of my my good friends my bandmates they were all you know beijingers born and bred also, it fits my personality. I'm I'm like that. I'm kind of zhishuang and a very, um, well, I'm fascinated by politics, by power. Uh, yeah, by, by the exercise of authority. I, hey, I, I host a goddamn podcast. I mean, I do like to talk and I love to listen to people tell stories. So yeah, Beijing's it for me. I, I, I certainly agree with your characterization of Shanghai, though. I mean, that there is an awful lot of power that grows out of its economic vitality. And so, yeah, of course, I mean, Shanghai's really important. And, yeah, we've seen major factions arise out of Shanghai and, and really dominate the political landscape for, for much of the reform and opening period. So, yeah. So I, I was wondering, I was chatting with, uh, I don't know if you know him, but uh, Don Clark, who is a, a China-focused legal scholar, and we were exchanging some of the wit and wisdom in this great series of books that I, I started reading when I was a kid, Will Durant, and later Will and Ariel Durant, The Story of Civilization. And he has this book, the first in the series, is called Our Oriental Heritage, And in it, he wrote something um, and that Don, we were sort of exchanging on on Twitter, some of the, the great things that Durant had said. And he wrote this, he said, China, like India, is to be compared with Europe as a whole rather than with any one nation of Europe. It is not the united home of one people, but a medley of human varieties, different in origin, distinct in language, diverse in character and art and often hostile to one another in customs, morals, and government. Um, now, it happens that I was reading your letter, or rereading your letter, actually, just at that very time. Now, that was published back in 1935, but I, it occurred to me that in the 90, what, 90 years since, almost, uh, since 19, and especially really since 1949, one of the great projects of the central government has just been one of homogenization, when you look at these mega-regions in which you've lived, Dan, it's clear that what Durant wrote is, to an extent, less true due to these efforts at homogenization than it was, but still kind of true, right? I mean, despite the, these, these efforts. So I, I would say that you know diversity, though, has been a great source of strength culturally, uh, economically, intellectually, for sure, but that too much uh, regional diversity presents some real governing challenges. So. Has homogenization, in your mind, gone too far, not far enough, just about right? Where are you on this?
1: Well, I think um, you're absolutely right, first of all, Kaiser, that this has reduced. This homogenization is uh, much, much more present in China. And I see this in, I think, uh, in many different ways. I mean, first of all, standard Mandarin is now... Common in most places, uh, certainly among the elderly uh, in uh, many different regions, they're still not quite speaking um, a a perfect standard Mandarin, but that is uh, much more present. And I find that I think this regional identity um, is not so important anymore anymore at least in, mm. uh, let's say, Beijing and Shanghai, where there is you know, just considerably more wealth around the country such that you know, it shouldn't be surprising that there are you know, rich people in relatively poor provinces and they're agglomerating in a city like Shanghai or Beijing. And I think it has become uh, much less important uh, where you are from so long as you are um, you know, doing something good and excellent. And I think the other sort of surprising thing to me is, you know, I think one of the points I mentioned in my piece this year is that one of the things that China has figured out is the homogenization of these slow, casual uh, chain restaurants. The likes of Ding Tai Fung, the likes of Taiar in terms of sauerkraut fish, um, the likes of Xibe yeah. in terms of the uh, uh, Northwestern uh, meats and uh, breads. And, you know, that's not something that uh, China, I think, has really figured out in the past, you know, just these broader supply chain food consistency issues. And that's something that it has figured out uh, more recently. And you see basically a little bit more of the homogenization of uh, the malls and everything else uh, as well. Now, where do I stand on um, this trend? Well, you know, I think I'm broadly uh, in favor, and I have always been Mm. a a quite strong partisan for standard Mandarin. Um, You know, I'm not sure if you know this uh, about my uh, family, uh, Kaiser, but my mom was a radio news anchor, and She was also a television um, news anchor, and then she uh, <laughs> forbade us to speak our uh, local dialect. Uh, we could only speak um, CCTV Mandarin um, to her, and that is um, how I've been raised. And that is um, actually quite something I enjoy. That you know, standard Mandarin is uh, very much everywhere in this country, and uh, so you know, I don't, I don't think that this, um, you know, too much um, homogenization is um, too uh, much of a bad thing so long as you don't lose uh, many of the local customs Um, but i think it is very very good that there is a common language between the different regions and i mean common language in uh, many different facets uh, so that people are able to speak with each other interact with each other do business with each other without having too many of these local prejudices uh, against each other uh, for when they uh, get into business
0: What I like about you, Dan, is that I always expect to be surprised, and yet I'm always surprised. (laughs) Your section about the three main mega-regions also includes some discussion of Hong Kong uh, and its fate. Um, You weren't living there during the demonstrations over the extradition bill uh, or for the protracted and agonizing protests or for the imposition of the national security law, but you say that you were already aware that Hong Kong was a city in structural decline. What were the signs of decline and and what was the underlying pathology of Hong Kong in your estimation?
1: Well, uh, first, I should acknowledge that a lot of people went after me on Twitter as well as by email saying that my section on Hong Kong was too mean. And this I concede. uh, I think I I was um, quite mean uh, against Hong Kong. But there was also a lot of criticism that my claims about Hong Kong were too mainland centric, which in my view does not constitute um, a substantive pushback against any of my claims. I don't think that any of my claims actually substantially overshot uh, in terms of how they described Hong Kong. And the first thing I should acknowledge about Hong Kong is that it is a tropical paradise. You know, it is really wonderful to be living in a... world's third largest financial center, and be able to access hikes, be able to access beaches, go on these pleasure ferries to just visit outlying islands. That all is very, very nice. But what I did not enjoy about Hong Kong, I was there from 2017 to 2018 over those two years, as you say, before um, the protests, is that it has been stagnant for uh, many decades. Hmm. And I think it is very, very difficult to walk around Hong Kong and spot something that has been new since 1990. In 1990, Hong Kong was one of the most advanced cities in the world. You have the octopus card, um, you have just a a lot of very good, comfortable situations that the city has designed. And I don't think that it has advanced very substantially since that point, from uh, payments um, to everything else around the soft uh, infrastructure of the city. And I think the best data point is that, unlike Singapore, Hong Kong's business landscape really has been stagnant uh, for the last Mm -hmm. three decades, It hasn't created very many new companies, it is still the preserve of property developers as well as big conglomerates, and it is almost entirely a finance uh, and logistics driven town. And the data point that I'd like to cite is that if you want to be an artist in Hong Kong, Your rent is going to be $3,000 in the middle of Kowloon, which is quite far from um, the city center. It is just really, really difficult when you have to pay that much in rent to be quite an innovative person. And so Hong Kong really has been, I think, very stagnant for the last three decades. And it's just not been an economically vibrant place, driven so much by this obsession with finance uh, and um, not really allowing younger people to be very, very experimental or very, very innovative.
0: So you lay the the, the stagnation really at the feet of this class of, of property developers and
1: bankers. Uh, that's exactly right. And I think the person who uh, best outlined the structural forces here is a, a friend of mine in Hong Kong, Simon Cartledge, mm-hmm. um, who wrote uh, one of the short uh, uh, books for Penguin uh, about five years ago. And has also written more extensively about this, which is to say that it's really about the local Hong Kong elites, um, which were first co-opted by the British colonial authorities to be relatively docile as the British authorities handed them uh, land to the most docile. And then the Chinese the governing authorities, when they took over Hong Kong about 20 years ago, what they did was they took a look and asked themselves, how does Hong Kong work? What makes it successful? It is to empower the business elites. And so I think this uh, Hong Kong business elites had this benefit, first of all, from the British authorities, and then second of all, from the Chinese authorities, basically to keep their monopoly profits uh, for as long as possible. And that's something that they've done very well. And that has made the city very, very stagnant indeed.
0: Yeah, yeah. So... You note that you still have sympathy for Beijing, uh, that there is, as you say, still a use for the hard men of the north, and suggest that in the present context, that use might be in taming the venality of the capitalists of, of Shanghai and Shenzhen. Should I take this to mean that you think that there is a geographic or sectional politics to this common prosperity agenda that we've all been talking about?
1: I think that uh, what Beijing represents is um, really this idea of the pursuit of utopia. Hmm. That Beijing is not uh, satisfied with wealth accumulation per se. That money making cannot be the final standard of truth. Now, I'm going to exaggerate these stereotypes um, a, a little bit here, but you know, in my view, um, you know. People in Shenzhen and people in Shanghai are quite a bit more concerned with um, money than with um, other issues. And one of the opinions I like to cite is uh, Chen Ying, who was yeah. one of the major figures of reform and opening in terms of representing the conservative faction. He was from the Shanghai region, and he thought that everyone in his home region of Shanghai were simply opportunists uh-huh. uh, who would sell the social order uh, for a dime. And so, you know, the uh, Shanghaiers and uh, people in Shenzhen um, really distinguish themselves uh, for being able to make quite a bit of money, and um, you know, in terms of how I think about Beijing, from being this intellectual place for uh, driving towards these bigger ideas, and that was really the core of my essay in 2020 that yeah. um, Beijing is obsessed with these um, centralized campaigns of inspiration, in which it is always trying to lift the gaze of the capitalists into pursuing some form of utopia. And utopia, as Beijing understands it, is you know socialist modernization by 2049, as well as the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. And so I think this is it is not merely satisfied with being rich. There must be some form of socialist modernization or rejuvenation of the people along with it. And this is why I think that common prosperity is in part this way to tell the capitalists. This is sort of the s- uh, social order that we want you to aim for. That this is—it's um, you, you, it, not just enough that some people are able to get rich first. Prosperity means wealth for the entire people, and I think this is part of the northern Beijing agenda to corral people into having these political goals that they must pursue. It's interesting that you put a geographic locus on
0: it, but I think that that you could make that argument pretty pretty well. Now let's dig a little bit into this common prosperity agenda, uh, what we at SubChina have have dubbed the Red New Deal. Um, To me, making useful sense of what we're seeing today in China requires that kind of integrative mind that that can see the thing from a bunch of different angles. So I think, you know, you being such a person, if you you could, could you talk about how you approach this issue? Uh, I'm not asking, in other words, what you think about it specifically, but how you think about it. How do you Come at this flurry of regulatory change, this all these new, you know, lifting of gaze uh, mobilizational efforts that we've seen coming out of aging. How do you come at that? What are some of the
1: the ways you've thought about it? That's a very good question, Kaiser. And I think the challenge with something like common prosperity right now is that. It remains a fairly vague slogan. And we don't really know what constitutes common prosperity because at this moment, we still don't really have any real regulations, any real policies attached to this big slogan. And so I think the way to approach this question is to approach it like any other major Chinese slogan, like reform and opening. You know, what exactly did reform and opening mean when it was first announced in, I, I think, something like 1979? We didn't really know what it meant because it took about a decade for the policies really to roll out. It was signaled by Deng Xiaoping that we will cross the river by feeling the stones, practice is the sole criterion for the determination of truth. And so there are some guideposts there, but right now we don't have a very, very good idea of what common prosperity means. And so I think right now my mode is still just very much a wait and see. I expect we will have somewhat greater clarity on this question right now, but it is not right now to be um, too excited about every part of it because I suspect that the leadership itself still doesn't really know what exactly will constitute what every part of common prosperity. They're just going to put out some trial balloons and then figure out um, what it will mean from here.
0: Those trial balloons, though, have been launched from a lot of different launch pads, a lot of different sectors. A lot of facets to this thing already, it's already clear that there isn't just an economic component to it, that there is uh, a cultural element to it as well. There are preferences in terms of, of style even, and in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's multifaceted, and, and that, that's really what you know, I was getting at. And you're right, we don't see it really clearly, but I thought that the, the speech that C that gave in August and that was finally published in Cheshire in in October was uh, I I mean I think I think we can see the outlines of it at at the very least.
1: You're right that um, the Cheshire speech published in August gives some outlines for what Xi Jinping wants in terms of common prosperity, but the issue is that it is still i think fairly vague uh, thrusts towards uh, some sort of a uh, political ideal uh, in terms of you know how to make the country quite a bit more equal but you know what exactly does prosperity for the entire people uh, constitute what we need to know are when exactly the property tax will be rolled out much more broadly exactly what sorts of redistribution policies this will constitute what exactly tertiary distribution Tertiary redistribution will mean, uh, in terms of beyond encouraging people to donate more to private charities. I think there will need to be quite a bit more real policies uh, attached to common prosperity in to order to make the country more equal. And at the same time, uh, Xi Jinping has already said that common prosperity does not constitute egalitarianism, and then also that he doesn't want a perfect welfare state because that would make the people lazy. So already there are some contradictions uh, in here uh, about what common prosperity uh, will meet. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I think that's to be expected. As you said, you know, we didn't see clear outlines of reform and opening until it was an iterative process. It came out, you yes, know, a little
1: bit. At the exactly. Time.
0: So I suggested in our introduction that, that China and the U.S. face quite a number of analogous challenges. Uh, one that I had in mind was uh, addressing the related problems of wealth and income equality and the power of technology companies. What do you make so far of Xi Jinping's efforts to tame the robber barons of China's gilded age? How's he doing on that on that count?
1: Right. Well, um, first of all, you referenced one uh, Roosevelt's plan of uh, a red new deal. You know, I here is my attempt to reference an earlier Roosevelt's plan of um, you know taming China's uh, gilded age. There are a lot of people who say that China is presently in its own gilded age, and it has a lot of ebullience as well as a lot of hucksters. And I think that part of the summer storm, part of the crackdown uh, over this year is to really try to rein in a lot of the excesses of its own Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. Now, the progressive era with Chinese characteristics doesn't really look like um, the progressive era that the (laughs) U.S. um, prosecuted in the 19th century. No, indeed. You know, it is also concurrently coming down with this crackdown on not just taming robber barons, um, but also men who would rather prefer uh, to look like women. You know, I don't believe that is something that the American government ever really try to regulate. And so this is a sort of a very strange um, sort of crackdown. And you know, I quite like the term, um, the summer storm, which is something that um, Barry uh, the economist yeah. uh, Barry Naughton um, came up with. And that's something that I, I think I'll, I'll reference as a metonymy for the entire regulatory program mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. over our conversation. And so I think the summer storm really has, I think, three components. The first component is a lot of the technocratic reasons the Chinese leadership is thinking about about how to govern these major technology companies that are pretty much identical to the same debates and the same issues that the US and Europe are currently discussing that there that there need to be better regulation of these major platforms which should not be substantially hurting smaller firms there need to be better data privacy there need to be better, use of data issues and better use of algorithms as well. Where the Chinese uh, landed this year, I think it's not a 1000 miles away from where the US and Europe are discussing. Now what is special about China is basically the speed and the ferocity that it brought to bear on these regulations. These regulations would never be passed so quickly um, in the US or Europe. Right. And I think a second component of this broad crackdown is the greater uh, desire for political control um, over um, these major companies. And I think that frankly has to be acknowledged that the Chinese leadership has decided that these major tech companies are too large, they have too much data over different people, and they need to uh, have some regulation as well as some political control brought to bear on them. And the Chinese government is much more interested in direct political control and a sort of ideological compliance with all of these companies. And that I think that is, I think, uh, fairly different from the US. Um, And I think a third um, component here is, I think, still more broadly, uh, you know, spiritual, civilizational yet, which is to try to turn China's uh, style of capitalism into more of a German direction, into less of a US or UK direction. And I think it has mostly rejected capitalism as it is practiced in something like the U.S., where the two major growth regions over the last 20 years have been Silicon Valley on the one coast, which means you know consumer internet, as well as Wall Street on the other coast, which broadly represents financialization. Yeah. I think China is looking far more longingly at Germany, which is driven quite a bit more by manufacturing firms, by industrial firms, by firms that are not too large, I think that China is much more keen to be practicing manufacturing instead of delving still further into digital technologies as well as manufacturing, which is um, really the U.S. competence over the last two decades.
0: Absolutely. Going back now to what you you were saying about, you were basically describing two competing narratives about the summer storms, especially as they affected the internet sector. And there were some people who were arguing pretty vociferously that, no, oh, look. This this isn't ideological. This isn't about the the government trying to you know exert control necessarily. It's really that there was a lot of moral hazard in these things. That they were being really irresponsible. That they were riding roughshod over user privacy, abusing data. There was that that narrative. And then the, the other one that said, nope. You look. They're 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 just trying to uh, bring these guys to heel. They see them as a rival locus of power, and they're never going to allow Jack Ma to be that. And 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 I never accepted wholly either of them, and I see you don't either, uh, which yeah, I think I, I completely agree with you that it, it can
1: be, and in fact is both. Yes, certainly there. I think there is no contradiction uh, between either. That's right. You know, I think there is both a technocratic uh, crackdown as well as some sort of ideological crackdown as well. And I don't see why we have to embrace either one or the other. You know, right, it is right. um, crackdowns on both sides. It is certainly both.
0: So you you talk about how China is drawn toward uh, toward Germany. The other side of that, of course, is that it's repulsed by what it's seen happening in the United States. It, it still looks to the US, China does, obviously. Uh, and in, in sometimes, some, sometimes it looks to the US in you know, for positive examples but increasingly it strikes me that it's looking to the u.s to see what it should avoid what are the negative lessons that beijing now sees as it looks across the pacific to the u.s i mean you focused on a few things and you talked about over financialization you know the the east coast right wall street the the west coast or the, uh, the 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 embrace of consumer internet the lionization of consumer internet which was a big theme in your uh 2020 letter which i thought was fantastic but also, this German example, you know, the fear, and this comes from the UK and the US as well, of the hollowing out of manufacturing and the breakdown of what you call communities of engineering practice. And, and that is one of the most attractive things, I, I imagine, that it still sees in Germany. Can you talk quickly about what Beijing fears and how it wants to go about limiting and preventing that kind of an
1: outcome in China? I think the revulsion of the U.S. system started a little bit earlier in um, 2008 when sure. you know, that was, I think, the, the high point of um, U.S.-China cooperation. When in the last time the uh, Beijing hosted the Olympics, President George Bush um, came over and uh, seemed to have uh, quite a lot of fun. And I think that really represented the high point of U.S.-China cooperation. And after the financial crisis of 2008, what it seems like um, happened is that Beijing took a, a look over there and said, well, maybe this um, isn't the system that we ought to adopt wholesale. Right. And so over the last 13 years, the Chinese government has steadily moved away from the U.S. model. And I think the summer storm of this year shows just another ratchet away from the U.S. model in terms of rejecting uh, consumer internet as well as financialization. Now, I should say that previously, I used to work in Silicon Valley. It's not simply consumer internet over there. There is also a lot of great work being done on software. There's a, a lot of great work being done on you know, business software, um, in particular right now. And I think the U.S. technology giants have a much better claim or technology innovation than the Chinese um, giants in terms of Amazon having promoted basically, you know, Amazon web services, as well as um, a retail bro- a productivity much more broadly throughout the economy. Mm-hmm. What I suspect that China isn't very enamored of is that it has realize that consumer internet is not necessarily the very peak of technological progress right. in terms of having a lot of social networks. These are presenting as often speech problems, uh, as well as you know, other types of social problems that are being very uh, much discussed in the uh, U.S. as well right now. And also for you know not doing a lot of R&D that really promote um, much more strategic objectives. And so I think when it takes a look at something like online tutoring, for example, China has realized that a lot of what the online tutoring companies are doing is monetizing the status anxieties of middle class parents such that, you know, Mrs. Zhang keeps feeling being outspent by uh, Mrs. Li. Uh, And then also when it is taking a look at something like Ant Financial, well, you know, it is very plausibly introducing some pretty novel financial risks into the system. And it should not be celebrated per se as innovation because uh, it is also creating a a lot of social problems while it is being pretty innovative. And so, you know, I think that is a, a lot of the agenda that Beijing has. It is to try to create an economic system where the physics PhDs are not necessarily going in mass uh, into hedge funds, as well as consumer internet. Right. That's something of a trend over the last 20 years. And I think that has been a tragedy for the US economy. What I think Beijing wants to do is to make sure that you know the physics PhDs uh, can do some physics and the marine biology students can do marine biology, such that it's not just all the smart kids are just simply going on to work for consumer internet firms or on Wall Street. Yeah,
0: you put it really nicely. Beijing's goal is to channel entrepreneurial spirit into useful goals. And I think uh, we, we, we have a pretty clear idea of what it believes those useful goals are. There's also a fantastic section in, in your, we won't discuss it, but I just want to make sure that people are alerted to it. When you talk about meta and you talk about sort of the virtual worlds and you know China's uh, revulsion at, at virtual currency, at, at virtual worlds, uh, it, I mean, that hasn't played out yet, but it certainly will. I think you're absolutely right. It's that, you know, and again, you had a lovely turn of phrase, She wants people to live in the physical world, make babies, make steel, make semiconductors. Now, you've pushed back on this idea that what we saw at the beginning, you know, uh, with Alibaba and Didi was a tech crackdown, but, uh, you know, it was really more of a crackdown on consumer internet companies and on financialization. I completely agree. But people continue to frame this as a kind of all-out assault on tech that is going to kill innovation and creativity among China's entrepreneurially minded. Um, You saw Li Yuan's op-ed piece in the New York Times the other day, didn't you? Yes. Did you see that? Yeah. So, I mean, you you do raise concerns over the risk that, that the crackdowns, not these tech crackdowns, but the heightened regulatory demands overall might actually dampen. Economic dynamism. Can you talk about that and distinguish
1: the two? Certainly, I think there is a risk that people are just too scared of this uh, tech crackdown um, to uh, do much more. And I should note that my friends who uh, work in uh, online tutoring or who work in ride sharing today have PTSD. They just have no (laughs) idea if their next venture might just be almost outlawed by the Chinese government. And so they are certainly very, very nervous. And I think this is almost entirely a coincidence. But the major term to come out of China this year was Tom yeah. you know, to lie flat and not do any work. You know, I suspect this had nothing to do with the uh, Chinese regulatory campaigns as such. But you know, this is um, a, a bit of an issue out there that a lot more Chinese simply want to be slackers and chill.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that was really a response to 996, though. And, and in fact, this is something that was part of the summer storm too. As they went after 996 culture, they did you know they started to, to enforce more re- labor regulations and and to uh, outlaw contracts that demanded those sorts of outlandish hours. So uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: I think there is certainly a risk that the uh, summer storm um, has dampened uh, entrepreneurial spirit. What we do know is that a lot of Chinese founders, the founders of Ping Duoduo, the founders of ByteDance, you know, many more of them have simply announced that they are stepping down or stepping into the background to take some sort of non-executive role. Yeah. And so I think that has pre created quite a lot of fodder um, for people to think that um, you know, this is not uh, something that is uh, encouraging entrepreneurial animal spirits. And I think um, in general, I am uh, more inclined to take the other side of the bet. When I talk to entrepreneurial friends of mine, they think that Jack Ma has all of these champagne problems that are just far too removed from their daily economic life. Mm-hmm. Jack Ma still remains one of the richest men in the world. He's spending quite a lot of time playing golf, doing calligraphy, you know, examining agricultural technologies in the Netherlands. Hardly seems like a very bad life. No. There are um, still a lot of people doing quite a lot of uh, interesting projects in China who would love to have the problems that Jack Ma is having. And I suspect, you know, um, a lot of the people um, who were working in online tutoring, who are working in ride-sharing, who are... Uh, programmers or developers now will at some point figure out um, better jobs. They're, they'll just have to figure them out in areas that are in favor from the Chinese government. And so these are things that include um, industrial robotics and semiconductor robotics, and, yeah. renewable technologies, aviation technologies, we That's can go right. on. That will be quite a bit harder to try to find these jobs if they d- didn't have the skills. But you know, I suspect that they will be able to find pretty remunerative um, uh, positions at some point.
0: And the Chinese leadership does you the, uh, the the favor of flagging the funko pretty clearly, the, the uh, wind tunnels or whatever, pretty clearly. You know where the where the fans are going to be placed that you can set your sail to. Sure. Yeah. So one observation that you made that really intrigued me was about the U.S. focus on efficiency versus the Chinese focus on resilience and how China's approach might not look good by traditional measures that, that economists have used, but America's obsession with efficiency just-in-time delivery and things like that, it actually results in in fragility. While China's approach is is anti-fragile, as as Nicholas Taleb might might have said, um, the U.S. focus on efficiency, you write in your letter, has revealed the brittleness of its economy, which has neither the manufacturing capability to scale up domestic production of goods, nor the logistics capacity to handle greater imports. Can you unpack that argument a bit? Because I think it's really compelling.
1: My starting point for making that argument is you know, a lot of the economists' claims that China does poorly in a lot of metrics that economists like. You know, one of these is return on equity. Another are things like um, total factor productivity growth. And in my view, the focus on these factors is, as often, an indictment on the economic profession. In which um, you know this focus on return on equity, as you put it, just-in-time logistics, lean manufacturing, these have really revealed how fragile the U.S. economy is during this pandemic. Now, to be fair, I think this once-in-a-century pandemic is not necessarily something that businesses really ought to plan for. You know, For a lot of these once-in-a-century events, it really ought to be the government that thinks quite a lot about these things. But I think it is uh, still an indictment on the U.S. corporate sector that they have focused to this extent on efficiency, such that they are... You know, they have been getting rid of their workers for quite a long time. They've been getting rid of their inventory. And I think there should be a bit of a corrective to think about, you know, how to build a little bit more resilience into supply chains. And I think the broader point I have on this is that this very deep focus on efficiency has eroded a lot of U.S. manufacturing capacity. Now, the U.S. manufacturing workforce uh, has uh, really fallen off uh, its peak in the uh, 1970s. And what I should note is that U.S. manufacturing real output still today has not overcome its 2008 levels. It is still below its 2008 levels. And I think this speaks to the broad trend of deindustrialization in the U.S. It has deindustrialized. It has lost a lot of its manufacturing workers. And as a consequence, it has lost a lot of the process knowledge it needs to really be an industrial economy, to really have the skills to build much of a manufacturing sector. And I think this has been uh, very much uh, revealed by the pandemic. Now, China is less interested in uh, perfect efficiency. It builds a lot of spare capacity into its system.
0: Redundancy too, yeah.
1: That's right. Redundancy, it trains a lot of workers that are not necessarily making very efficient products. And, you know, again, you can debate whether a -a once-in-a-century event really validates um, the, the, the Chinese system. Perhaps not. Perhaps redundancy is still something that you should in general try to reduce. But I think there, there, there ought to be some sort of a middle ground between the US hyper focus on efficiency, as well as the um, Chinese focus on resilience that should make a stronger economy.
0: You probably got in trouble again with uh, the Hong Kong guys for saying this, but you wrote figures must be reconciled with observations on the ground. During my time in Hong Kong, I found it absolutely hilarious to see annual rankings by think tanks, giving the city state the highest marks on economic freedom while its business landscape has been static for decades, I submit, and this is really the important part, that observers are making a mistake in the opposite direction when they use macro indicators to underrate dynamism in China. That's a really interesting statement. What is it that you see on the ground there in China that suggests hidden sources
1: of dynamism? The good and the bad thing about China, Kaiser, is that everything changes every eighteen months, and so it's uh, all the more important that uh, people are able to see uh, what's going on uh, on the ground here. Right. You know, and that is um, the tragedy of the pandemic that prevents people like you from uh, coming over um, here. And I think, just in general, you know, uh, as I as I, I as I mentioned earlier. When you walk around Hong Kong, there isn't too much um, really new over the last um, 30 years when it was an advanced society. By the same token, uh, walking around China just, you know, I think exposes a, a lot of the silliness of these um, economic rankings that put Chinese dynamism very, very low, that total factor productivity growth, which is poorly measured anywhere in the world, is falling in China. I think these metrics should not govern our understanding of the Chinese economy. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that, you know, uh, the, um, the standardization of the slow casual chain restaurants, I think that is something that is a quite difficult problem to get right, this um, issue of food management. And from a very micro level, that Chinese managers have been able to figure this out, I think is a sign that Chinese have been pretty good at a, a lot of these quality improvements that are not necessarily captured very well by total factor productivity growth. I sit in Shanghai, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I chat to have not gotten the memo that globalization is dead, that the entire world is rejecting Chinese products, that the innovation, that the sense of innovation um, really is over from the summer storm. They're still trying very hard to create billion-dollar businesses. And just from this trend of general quality improvement within established businesses that I observe in Shanghai, as well as still quite a lot of enthusiasm by entrepreneurs that they are out there, that the world is their oyster, that they are going to conquer the the world with their products. Because I observe these two things, quality improvement in established businesses, as well as new innovation, I suspect that the rest of the world would be underestimating China if they're only looking at these macro indicators.
0: For all, I love the, uh, the way that your letters every year make me think so much about China. They always infallibly make me think an awful lot about my own country here, the United States as well. American China watchers, including many close to me, are often lamenting what they see as a lack of, of reforms in China or progress on reforms, by which they almost always mean market liberalization or deregulation. So some of them might be surprised to read in your letter this year an indictment of America's seeming inability to reform. You use the word reform. We usually don't use that when we talk about you know the, the kinds of legislative changes that are needed to, to get America out of gridlock or to, to change, you know, get America on a new economic footing. We don't use the word reform. It's it's strange. I, I was wondering what was what jarred me about reading that word in this context. But you go on to note that the way that China meets challenges like greater labor unrest, you know, by, by simply creating more jobs through SOEs in areas where that unrest is happening. Um, And then, you know, a few paragraphs later, while musing about decoupling, you report that uh, MNCs that you're talking to speak quite approvingly of five-year plans and and lament that the U.S. never provides that kind of predictable policy uh, continuity. One might interpret this as a suggestion that the reforms that America really needs actually involve much greater state participation in the management of of, of economic activity. Would that be accurate? Well, I'm not sure
1: I would go quite so far, um, Kaiser, (laughs) but uh, first of all, I um agree with your framing that maybe the US needs a reform and opening uh, of its own to be much more serious about thinking about how to make itself um quite a bit more competitive. Now, I think mm-hmm. the idea of reform that I do not observe so much in the US is first of all I think that US state capacity has not covered itself in glory over the last uh, 20 years between the various wars in the Middle East between as well as the financial crisis, as well as the pandemic, you know, I think the pandemic has really exposed a lot of the problems with the federal bureaucracy in DC, especially with the CDC that, you know, I think are not doing so well. And so in the face of a decline in state capacity in the US, what President Biden has done very well is he has created a lot of legislation to try to improve the US. What I observe is that, a lot of these pieces of legislation, for example, his big infrastructure bill, as well as the proposed U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, is that these pieces of legislation don't do uh, fundamentally quite a lot to try to fix and tune up these broken federal bureaucracies. Right. Uh, we have now a, a lot of the science disbursement agencies. You know, a lot of the stories out of them is that uh, a lot of these uh, grant administrators are much more concerned with style guides rather than with the science. And the U.S. now has the most expensive regime in the world for building infrastructure. It's the slowest as well as the most expensive And so, you know, a lot of these things need to be fixed. Now, what President Biden has done is uh, increased spending through these channels. Yes, Um, now throwing money at it, throwing more money at it, which certainly helps. Um, But what I am more interested in the U.S. is to um, be, um, you know, quite a bit more active about fixing these institutions. And that is really something that I think China is still pretty good about. One of these things that I've been looking at in China is, um, for example, the system of intellectual property. And this is one of the most malign issues about China. But if you talk to basically any IP lawyer in China, they would acknowledge improvements in the system over the last few years. There is now an IP court within the Chinese Supreme Court uh, system. There are IP courts embedded in Shanghai and Shenzhen and many other places. And there are continuous tune-ups. One of the first speeches that President Xi Jinping gave this year was about uh, intellectual property. And one thing that Mark Cohen at UC Berkeley said was that mm-hmm. you know, the last time that any US president gave a speech about intellectual property was Abraham Lincoln. You know, And so <laughs> there are a lot of tune-ups. There are a lot of um, fixes within the bureaucracy. President Xi Jinping is also trying to fix the science disbursement agencies in China. And so what we see is not just trying to throw more money at the problem in China, but also a much more serious effort to ask, how are our institutions faring and how do we fix them?
0: Yeah, it's always astonishing to me to read work reports or or speeches that are actually given by the Premier or by the General Secretary, and the level of detail, they're larded up with a lot of ideology and rhetoric as well, but there's, there's still, there's so much discussion of very specific policies and very specific, you know, usually technological areas. Uh, that it's, I find it very impressive. I think people who've been looking at elite politics in China for a long time uh, have noticed that there's something of a Beihang clique. Beihang, of course, is, you know, the aerospace university in Beijing, uh, an aerospace faction, some have, have described it as, that's now sort of rising through the ranks of, of China's bureaucracy. Um, these are very different technocrats from the ones that we saw rise in the 80s and the 90s. The old batch were often kind of Russian-educated hydrological engineers or or chemical engineers. But you noted the significance of the fact that the party secretary of Zhejiang province, um, Yuan Jiajun, was previously the head of China's Shenzhou space program, you know, the one that put a lunar lander on and and was in charge of the the Mars uh, program. Incidentally, uh, he was also... Uh, a beihang graduate the new party chief in xinjiang although he wasn't a beihang graduate was an aerospace guy too what can we infer from these appointments is technocracy back after it kind of having faded you know if you look at the 18th and the 19th uh party congress their their politburo standing committees were not overwhelmingly at all technocrats but it looks like they're back is that is that an, a fair
1: reading? And what does it mean? It's a possible reading. Well, and I think um, um, you're 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 very right. By the time of um, Hu Xing Tao, there were a lot of engineers in the Politburo. I believe Hu Xing Tao himself was a hydraulic engineer. Yeah. And by the time that General Secretary Xi came onto the scene, I think his training, his, you know, his formal educational training was in economics and um, or or law. And um, that's the same with Premier Lee as well. And so he went from being engineer-dominated into these law and economics-dominated, which is kind of like the scene in the U.S. as well. And it is possible that we are shifting back into a more engineering-focused uh, set of cadres through the Behan clique, through the aerospace um, people. But what I suspect is uh, not going to change very substantially is the policy direction. I'm not sure how much the formal training in a lot of these fields have really influenced these leaders. I suspect that the um Communist Party yeah. is uh, of the of the of the future still mostly going to look like the present even though, you know, they have uh, slightly different backgrounds.
0: So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about something that that uh, is one of those things where I really really wish I were in China to be able to to get a better feel for this. And I want to get your read on this. What is it like for the people who you run with, who presumably are, you know, a lot of educated elites in coastal cities, what is it like for them to look right now at the U.S.'s handling of the COVID-19 pandemic? How would you describe what it's done to their attitudes toward the U.S. and also toward their levels of regime support in, in China?
1: I think the place to start is during the Trump administration. I mean, this is all rolled up together, the pandemic, um, as well as uh, President Trump. And people are uh, broadly very unhappy with the U.S., given a lot of the rhetoric from the Trump years, not just from the president, but also from the Secretary of State, as well as many other um, very senior administration officials. And one of the things that I've um, noticed is that a lot of folks in China have been feeling in a state of besiegement, um, that they feel mm. that the U.S. is now just sort of um, insulting them, maybe even trolling them uh, for uh, being uh, Chinese. And so when the pandemic came, um, you know, this did not really validate their sense that the U.S. is a very good place to be. And so there is just in general, I think, quite a big step change in the sense of anti-American sentiment. One of the things that I've heard from quite a few people who have spent time in the U.S. is that they used to think of the U.S. in a a very good way, and now they don't think of the U.S. very well at all. They they can't name very many good things. And certainly the pandemic uh, did not substantially help. And I think the way that the uh, Chinese are thinking about the pandemic is still as a, a, a really terrible virus that they should try to avoid. The Chinese leadership spent about two years really terrifying people about this virus. Now, um, perhaps you and I, Kaiser, acknowledge the virus as something you know that could often be uh, pretty mild to many different people. But that is certainly not how ordinary Chinese are thinking about it. When they see case numbers in the U.S. shoot up, they're not necessarily thinking about whether hospitalizations are keeping suit. They're just very scared of the of the, of the virus itself. And so, you know, hospitalizations aren't dropping, right? I mean, they are obviously,
0: you know, as a percentage of of new cases, there it's much, much lower. But the total number of occupied hospital beds is going up, the total you know, capacity of, of they're not stupid about that either. I mean and so but but they are are there a lot of people now questioning the country's zero covid policy? Do they think that this is sustainable or what what's the exit strategy from for this? What what do they see? I suspect that
1: I'm not talking about about Beijing, I'm talking about ordinary people. Well, I suspect that there is um, no sense of an um, exit strategy. You know, most people are not eager to go overseas. They certainly miss doing work trips in the US and certainly miss doing holidays in Italy. But I think for the most part, they are very, very scared of the virus uh, and are just going to stay home. Now, most people I speak with, um, ordinary people, um, as well as uh, people I run with, are suffering from pretty severe cabin fever. A, a lot of people haven't left mm-hmm. even their own cities over the last two years. But you know right. their, their own mindset is that this is the uh, price to bear during the pandemic.
0: Right, right, right. Is it your sense that this is something that Beijing is secretly glad about? That, I mean, th- this certainly does... Sort of help them along toward uh, you know the more autonomy, uh, greater social controls. It hasn't hurt in in a lot of ways, right? Is that too
1: cynical? Hard to speculate, but I suspect that there are a few people who are not terribly unhappy that they've cut out the rest of the world. For example, you know, in a very small tangible thing, the Olympics are happening less than thirty days from now, and. The pandemic has uh, been a great excuse for the Chinese government to bar spectators who may be holding up uh, signs like Free Tibet that they don't really want to see. And I think as a broader point, one of the things that I've been saying since 2018 is that I've seen China on a trend of greater closing up such that that I thought it was quite likely that by 2049, the centenary of the country's founding, that the country will be just closed off again. Will expel all the barbarians, and it will be, you know, serenely cheerful of, um, you know, what the barbarians are up to in their um, foreign turmoils. And it looks like I was only <laughs> off by the wrong centenary. That was a rough yeah. off by the centenary of the communist of the Communist Party's founding. And I think there are certain people who are glad that China is now learning how to close itself off from the rest of the world to be able to manage this society much more and to expel the barbarians and keep out the spiritual pollution.
0: Speaking of spiritual pollution, let's talk about cultural stunting, which is something that you've written quite a bit about in this year's letter. Now, a couple of questions. First, you do identify a couple of things that I think we would all agree are uh, successes, cultural successes, but there are really only two of them, TikTok and the three-body problem or the the trilogy, three-body trilogy as perhaps, yeah, arguably the only successful Chinese cultural products of recent years that had any resonance outside of China. And I mean, I agree, but
1: is outside of China the only thing that counts or the thing that counts most? I think it ought to count very, very substantially. And maybe, you know, to add on to this list a a little bit, you know, we can maybe say the um, art house films of um, which are um, superb. I encourage everyone to watch his movies, Mountains May Depart, uh, a, a Touch of Sin, but um, you know, it is um, drifting a, a little bit more deeply into niche territory uh, once again. And you know, I guess um, it's not the only thing that counts. I think the Chinese culture domestically certainly does count to the domestic population. And I, I think I, I make that point mostly to observe that when these economies like Japan, South Korea, to a lesser extent, Taiwan, got rich what they also produced were a lot of cultural products for the rest of the world to consume especially japan you know something like the um, walkman something like the nintendo the uh, manga genre you know one could go on and on with a a lot of the things that um, japan and south korea invented especially it seems like we're still in the period of uh, golden culture production in south korea Um, last year with squid games um, as well as still a lot of um, k-pop stuff you know, I think the um, these economies produce a lot of cultural products domestically and internationally, and you know it is um, yeah no argument there. that's right. And so it's not a problem that um, China is able to keep its own domestic population satisfied, but I think it does say something about its cultural stunting that during this enormous surge of wealth creation that's absolutely unprecedented, it was not able to create any cultural products um, that the rest of the world enjoys, and I think that is um, entirely due. To the censorship of the government.
0: Well, I, I would push back on entirely. Do I sure. mean it's Certainly, do in large part to it. Personally, I think that yes, that the, the success of cultural exports absolutely does matter. But they, it is not the sine qua non. What bothers me more is that even the cultural products that are for domestic consumption, consumption, the things that do let's let's say enjoy some success domestically, at least in terms of of you know of the money they make they don't measure up. I mean, I can't look at a Chinese film that did well in China or um, Chinese music that does well domestically in China and honestly say that it measures up to any kind of an international or even regional standard. Most of what is produced, though, is not art. It's shallow entertainment. You know that many people worry that the dead hand of the state, you know, has had this terrible effect on cultural production. I agree, yeah, for sure, but isn't the focus on the economy itself not just the top down nature of it but also the bottom up obsession with productivity this drive toward accumulation i i feel like that is one of the things that has stultified culture that we're just in an age where whether out of personal avarice or out of you know dedication to the great project of building the nation it it prioritizes economic activity over culture it's almost as though there were an inverse bell curve where you know cultural production is highest when economic focus is low so that like you go back to the, the last golden age of Chinese culture production the 1980s or the early 90s you know China's economy was was a was a shambles still uh you know but it fell off as as economic focus increased until maybe hopefully it will recover on the other end of that curve right once overall income is high enough and the need for that laser focus on production and wealth accumulation isn't so all-consuming maybe we'll see Culture production come back, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that the, the the stupid focus on soft power coming from the state there is a deep irony in that because soft power never comes from the state. It, it you know bleeds in from the periphery, right? It grows up from the grassroots, and they're not allowing that. So my, I'll get off my. So thank you for coming to my TED talk. Um, <laughs> but um, what if we were though to look at you know domestic success? And divide culture products roughly, you know, and yeah, problematically into sort of high, middle, and lowbrow. There's a lot of good lowbrow culture, right? I mean, you look at the the web novels and stuff like that. I mean, maybe I'm I'm insulting by calling it lowbrow, but you know, it's it's very popular. There are a lot of people who would defend it pretty ardently.
1: I I I agree with that, and I think. You know, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm um, quite into the opera, and you know, I think um, it is a very fair <laughs> criticism that I'm uh, much more interested in this um, highbrow culture, um, and uh, I'm ignoring a, a lot of the um, smaller things. And I think the the most substantive pushback, I think on this point that I've received is that, you know, Chinese games uh, have done very, very well overseas. Genshin Impact is the one that everyone cites. Now, I'm not a gamer. I'm not a, I don't understand these things at all. And so I think that is um, very legitimate to acknowledge that I have um, a blind spot here. (laughs) So I think it's possible to say that, um, you know, the lowbrow is doing very well in China. There is still pretty nice highbrow culture as well in China in terms of, um, you know, uh, for example, the um, art house films of Jia Zhangke and, um, you know, Bi Gan, I think, is um, uh, another uh, guy in Guizhou who's doing excellent work. But, you know, what I observe is that, you know, among my artist friends, um, especially among writers, is that they don't feel that they can publish a lot of good work, especially this year in 2022, because there will be a party congress at the end of it. And there has just been continued tightening on every front on cultural production over the last decade. And I think that has driven a lot of people either mad or out of the country. And these artists want to make, these artists want to produce. And no, I think the the point about Japan, South Korea and Taiwan is important because I don't really have real empirical data on this, but I think something that's true is that economic growth tends to come hand in hand with cultural growth as well and that's certainly the case with these three uh, economies and i think it i suspect that is also the case with the united states with germany with everywhere else uh, as well and so to see this big decoupling between chinese cultural production as well as chinese growth is uh, in fact very striking to me
0: dan i want to wrap up here uh, on something that we started with i quoted you early on talking about how how important it is for commentators to figure out how china can succeed rather than just report on the ways in which it appears and much of this I would tend to dismiss as just sort of psychological self-soothing, to quote one of our earlier guests, to collapse, right? Before you moved on to the opera bit, you actually said something important that I'd like for you to expand on. You wrote, The modal piece of commentary on China focuses mostly on the country's mistakes and weaknesses. In my view, much of this type of opinion is both useless and dangerous. What do you mean by that? Why is it
1: useless and dangerous? It's useless because a lot of these pieces don't make any serious attempt to engage with the country's strengths. And so if one wanted only to focus on the weaknesses of a country, let's say the United States, well, one really has a lot of material. And there's um, for any particular country beyond you know all the obvious stuff.
0: We're recording on January 6th, by the way, at least here in the U.S. You're, it's the 7th already, but it's today it's still January 6th. So I'm kind of aware of weaknesses right now. Sure. Anyway, go on. <laughs>
1: and it's dangerous because I think if these pieces are able to lull Americans into this complacency that, you know, for example, you know, the most cited piece of Chinese weakness is its demographic situation. China's demographic situation is pretty dire, but I'm not so sure that gently plateauing population really does constitute the death knell for this country. It is a pretty serious problem. But I don't think that it is this positive about saying that this country just simply cannot succeed with a gently plateauing population. And so you know, I think the the modal piece of commentary is both dangerous as well as um, useless. And I think better commentary need to do a much better job of really engaging with this country's strengths to really figure out how the leadership thinks to really figure out the scenarios in which china might succeed. You don't necessarily have to endorse these scenarios, but that is the exercise that the leadership is engaged in and so we should have a much better idea of how this country might succeed because uh, I believe that china will be a major peer competitor to the US and the US shouldn't either throw its hands up and do nothing or say that china will implode on its own and still do nothing. It needs to take this peer competitor much more seriously, much better understand it and also do better itself.
0: Well, you have been providing us consistently with pieces of commentary that certainly are not of the modal type you describe, And uh, I want to thank you very much for that. And I I think a lot of people out there, I saw how much buzz there was when you put this thing out. And a lot of people instantly wrote to me saying, are you going to get Dan on the show again? I said, of course I am. Of course I am. What do you think (laughs) I'm a astute? So uh, I got one more thing. Somebody wanted to know, I, I can't be the only reader of your letter to have been surprised uh, that somebody who's lived in China for as long as you only learned to ride a bike, like, last year. <laughs> and that immediately on, on learning to ride one, you embarked on this insanely long ride through, like, treacherous mountainous terrain. <laughs> what What's the story there, Dan, real quick?
1: Well, um, I you're right. I haven't learned how to ride a bike. It was just never um, part of my, um, my program. You know, I'm always very mortified about that fact. But thanks, Kaiser, for uh, letting me disclose that on <laughs> your <under> podcast. <laughs>
0: Well, it was in the letter. It was in the letter. Yes, That's yes. What you've
1: already you've already made it public. The way I learned it was um, because, uh, you know, I was in Beijing during the worst of the pandemic. I was in Beijing from February 1st onwards after um, Lunar New Year. And the, most of the city was shut down. And so we wondered, well, you know, what can we do here? And So two friends of mine decided that we should do some um, bike trips around the city. And then um, that was when I reluctantly learned um, how to ride a bike. And it was pretty wonderful that you could ride a twine bike down a completely deserted Chang'anjie. And so I don't think I'll um, ever be able to do uh, something like that ever again. And as you say, about 12 months after I learned how to ride a bike, this was over the summer. I uh, took a, as you say, insanely long ride from Guiyang to Chongqing. Over five days, I climbed through the mountains of the Sichuan Basin. That was, um, you know, uh, again, completely insane. I think I was absolutely not prepared for uh, what I actually did. But, you know, I managed to get through it, and it uh, it was a fun ride.
0: Well, you're looking good. Got in shape for that. I mean, it looks really good. Dan, once again, thank you so much. And I really hope that you continue this tradition. I, I mean, I know you're threatening to quit, but I, I'm going to pester you next year at the, end, at the end of the year. Anyway, I mean, it is such an important year. It's 2022. There's going to be a party congress. There's going to be lots to write about. Anyway, let's move on to recommendations. Before we do, let me quickly remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to help us out with the work that we do here at Seneca, the other shows in the network, the best way to do that is to subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. It is lovingly curated with lots of thoughtful commentary by Jeremy and, and the crew, Lucas and Zhao Yun. Check it out. It's an excellent newsletter, and it really does help. So let's move on to recommendations. Dan, what do you have for us?
1: Well, the best novel that I read this year is Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Oh, yeah. Tyler yeah. Cowan says it might be the greatest novel ever. Um, I certainly loved Bleak House. It is fairly long, like my letters. It's Dickens. It's long. And also daunting, um, perhaps also like my letters. But I I, I recommend it um, wholeheartedly. Just the writing of Dickens is absolutely beautiful. Nearly every sentence sparkles. It is. And um, it's a great plot as well.
0: Yeah, I've actually, in the last year, I've reread A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations. I was going to do David Copperfield before I... I, I did Bleak House, but I, maybe I'll just go right to Bleak House.
1: It's um absolutely, I think his um best work as well. Okay, all right. And in terms of nonfiction, my favorite book last year was Unfabling the East by a German historian called Jürgen Osterhammel, and this mm-hmm. was um, the subtitle is The Enlightenment's Encounter with Asia. Yeah, and it's a, a superb theme to think about how folks like Leibniz. Books like uh, Voltaire uh, were really quite obsessed with China. Leibniz thought that Chinese characters conveyed the essence of his monads. To me, that's um, just a really, really good theme. And Jürgen Osterhammel wrote also this other big book, uh, History of the Extended 19th Century, which is just chock full of facts. Um, Really my favorite style of nonfiction writing. And this book also really delivers. My favorite part of this book, Unfabling the East, was to document how the uh, Enlightenment thinkers really try to engage with China during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, in which, you know, accounts of pure fantasy circulated with scrupulously accurate records. They really had no idea how to think about this place. Uh, and, you know, just as an epistemological matter, it, it is a, uh, a pretty interesting account of how the Jesuits engaged with the Qing court and sent records back. It's uh, a very good book indeed.
0: Yeah, I I it sounds fantastic. just by absolute chance I wasn't I had no idea what you we were going to recommend. My recommendation for this week is a book by an Englishman, so you know, sort of like bleak house, uh but who is a Germanist who studies at Oxford. It's called The Enlightenment: The Pursuit of Happiness, uh which was just published in 2021. It's by Richie Robertson, who is a professor at Oxford. Uh he aims and I'm not done with it. I'm only about a third of the way in, but uh from what I can tell, chiefly to kind of discredit this idea that the Enlightenment was solely about reason, about the triumph of rational thought, and to restore, you know, the importance of emotion to its rightful place in in the uh, the thinking of the time among the philosophes, they took it very seriously. And he also wants to argue that the idea of happiness was really among the chief ideas and aims of most of the leading luminaries of that age. You know, the, the pursuit of happiness, of course, is a phrase that we're familiar with because of another, you know, Enlightenment figure who who wrote that into our Declaration of Independence. He also really tries to widen it to encompass more than just, you know, the Salons of Paris, right, in, in the mid-18th century, uh, to take it back in time and forward, you know, the long 18th century. Uh, so there's a lot of, in there on Kant and other Germans, about Hume, of course, was a Scotsman, and uh, on the American Enlightenment thinkers like Ben Franklin. So it's really excellent so far. The writing is superb. And it's very up to date. I haven't read a book about the Enlightenment in a while. It's a, a subject of fascination for my daughter. So it's something she always wants to talk to me about. So this has been a lot of fun.
1: You've uh, convinced me, first of all, that uh, this is uh, going on top of my list. I own the book, actually, oh. uh, Kaiser. I had no idea you were oh, going you to recommend it. I'm uh, certainly uh, very quick, uh, quickly going on my reading list.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's really great. I, I look forward to exchanging ideas uh, on it. So, Dan, thank you once again. That was really fun. And I really hope that you, again, you change your mind and you decide to write another letter, I'll put one of these things out every year. Uh, otherwise, what am I going to do come next January?
1: It would certainly be great to make this a yearly tradition, Kaiser.
0: Please do. Please do. I think a lot of people will uh, will echo my sentiment. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll see you around soon, man. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at sineca at subchina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.